Welcome to Supergirl's Attic. I'm Cycles. And I'm Vivi. And this episode, we're going to discuss Bunker Hill, episode eight of season four, which is a reference to a historical battle. And we all know that Vivi enjoys her history. (laughs) I sure do. So are you suggesting that you'd like me to explain why they chose this title? Yes, I, I would like you to explain. So the choice to use Bunker Hill was interesting because we've had so many other Revolutionary War references throughout the front part of the season, specifically with the Children of Liberty. The name is a play on the Sons of Liberty, who were very active during the early part of the revolution. So this episode gave us a much clearer picture of why Lockwood has such a connection to that particular period of history and those images and how he, as a person with a history background, has been manipulating people's feelings about their cultural identity in order to kind of play into his agenda. Mm -hmm. You noted before that this is not an unfamiliar tactic to the right regarding revolutionary history? No, it was something that we saw throughout the Bush administration and then a little bit into the Obama administration with the use of the Tea Party movement, um, which again was a Revolutionary War reference meant to associate those kind of fringe groups with something that we all think of culturally as like noble and like a good cause. Mm -hmm. So to swing that back around into how this all fits within this episode, you have Lockwood as he's giving the tour of his home has this display of things that one of his ancestors created during the revolutionary period, you find out that the Lockwood family has actually been involved in this practice of metal crafting for hundreds of years, which then gives a little more context to why his father was so resistant to letting it go. But more to the point, it directly goes back to the title of the episode Bunker Hill. That was a battle that took place actually before the United States existed as a concept. The Battle of Bunker Hill happened in the summer of 1775. The Declaration of Independence wasn't written until 1776. So this is like very early on. And at that point, the revolutionaries were seen by the British, who owned all of the territory, as kind of an insurgency movement in a lot of ways. They were agitating people. They were stealing things. They were damaging property. So a lot of people, if they have the term for the Sons of Liberty in their mind, they probably kind of know it from Hamilton, the musical. Mm -hmm. And in there, it's framed as a good thing. But according to some recent historians who've gone back to look at the revolutionary history of Massachusetts and understand the Battle of Bunker Hill, the Sons of Liberty, and so on, there was actually a lot of kind of a dark side to them. They weren't organized, according to uh, one historian. They displayed a lot of thuggish, vigilante behavior. And the other important thing that was interesting to me, because I hadn't known this either, was that their cause was actually fairly conservative. They weren't actually lobbying to separate necessarily as a country. They just wanted to protect their own personal wealth and like get the taxes stopped. But the leadership was very disparate, much like we see in the show with the way all of the different Children of Liberty kind of try to lie and be like, I am Agent Liberty. As to Bunker Hill itself, here in a not-drunk history recap. (laughs) (laughs) A sober history recap. (laughs) For a sober history basic recap of what took place here, there had been an earlier attempted rebellion in Massachusetts. The British Army shut that down. They were basically camped out in the city of Boston, which is a port city. It's got a lot of access for ships to go in and out. There weren't a lot of pathways by land at that point in time to get access to the city from, like, the community 
surrounding it. One of the ways you could do it was to go past these couple of hills. One of them was Bunker Hill. The Americans decided that they'd had enough of this British occupation. They cobbled together a collection of militias from different places up and down the coast. They managed to amass about a thousand people, but there was no really central command with a hierarchy and officers who knew what they were doing. They didn't have very much experience. They didn't have sufficient ammunition for a prolonged attack of any kind. And when they set out to start their attack, they were supposed to fight from Bunker Hill. They actually decided to keep on going to a strategically weaker position farther down, but one that was physically closer to where the British soldiers were as a show of intimidation. And that worked because it drew the British out to fight them. The American soldiers were significantly outnumbered. They ultimately had to flee because they ran out of ammunition after several rounds of sustained fighting. It got really ugly. There was a lot of very close hand-to-hand combat we see in the episode that Lockwood has a bayonet that was saved from the Revolutionary War period. For those of you who are not weirdos, who are familiar with historic war films or paraphernalia... Those are basically knives that you attach to your gun for when you're too close to fight or you run out of bullets so you can still attempt to hit and stab people. So it was a really ugly, very bloody battle, which we again have a reference to with Manchester commenting. He was being very graphic and descriptive with his language about the violence that Agent Liberty conducted against Fiona. Mm. And ultimately, the reason that this battle is interesting is that the British technically won because they forced the American army to retreat and they maintained their control over the city of Boston, at least for the short term. But it was also sort of a victory for the Americans because they managed to take out almost three times as many of their opponents as the British did. The British incurred huge losses. And the reason that that happened was that the American militias, because they were so informal and untrained, were using, as many of us have learned in history class, unconventional tactics. They were intentionally targeting officers in the opposing army to disrupt the flow and the chain of command so that there'd be more confusion. And, you know, those those people are more valuable targets. So if you take them out, it's more useful to you strategically. They were taking advantage of the way that the British army marched because they were so close together that even if you missed one person, you'd hit the person next to them. And ultimately, because the Americans were so tough and held out, it forced Britain to change its strategy for the whole rest of the war. And according to some military historians, this ultimately ends up losing the war for the British because they then become so much more cautious that it's easier for the American armies to use these unconventional strategies against them. Hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned the sort of face-to-face combat within that battle, because that's something that we're seeing within the show currently, especially with Manchester Hmm. and the way that he fights and the fight that he had with Lockwood, Agent Liberty, and with that bayonet, which you had noticed that I didn't even think about it, but he got like stabbed pretty early on with the bayonet. Manchester did. Yeah. And then he's like, fine. He just pulls it out of his shoulder and kind of grinned and kept on going. And I was like, no one's concerned about that. That's weird. It's never mentioned again. (laughs) (laughs) And I imagine that didn't happen in the Battle of Bunker Hill. Yep. I mean, it may have. You never know. (laughs) Uh, 
And the other thing that was interesting was that the show did not hide the fact at all that this was the metaphor that they were going for because Lockwood even says it yeah. to Manchester, who's like British to the max. He's got his Union Jack shirt, his Union Jack bulletproof vest, yeah. his Union Jack brass knuckles. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> very patriotic. He really is. I love that they're playing into that element of the comics because in a comic where everything is drawn it's much more logical to have them wear like the same outfit all the time. It's weirder in real life, but it's fun. Manchester's just in a really bad place. <laughs> he is. He just, he needs to feel that sense of self. It makes sense in the in the context of the fact that so many of the struggles this season are about identity. Mm. As is a big theme in general. It is. So Manchester shows up in his like Union Jack shirt. And settles down for a nice cup of tea <laughs> speaking of the american revolution <laughs> so it's it's kind of no wonder that lockwood frames it as like manchester as the british and himself as the very apparently heroic revolutionary american yeah he definitely is kind of trying to build up this analogy that he's the good guy by referencing all of these things from this period in history and calling to mind all these references to something that nowadays we perceive as a good thing in most of the world. As Lockwood is prone to do, frames that historical narrative in his favor. Yep, he definitely likes to do that. But it's interesting, too, in the way that he was kind of at the start of the episode saying he wanted to give Agent Liberty a pause for the moment and use his persona as Lockwood to legitimize his cause more. Mm -hmm. He mentions a name of who he's talking to, but we don't know who exactly that is yet. It's like Thack. Yeah. He tells Thack that he wants to appeal to the mainstream more. Why did you think it was interesting? Well, because he gave people this figurehead to rally around and perceived that it's kind of become popular, but he's kind of deploying some of the same methods that took place throughout the revolution where you have the real firebrand kind of figures who stir everybody up and get their emotions high. But the people who really accomplished the work were the intellectuals who wrote, you know, like the persuasive essays and went out and talked to people and convinced them that doing this was a good idea. And he's kind of trying to employ that same strategy here by saying like, okay, now's the time to really focus on the words and the messaging and the way that we're communicating and make it seem like friendly and worm our way into people's hearts and minds Mm -hmm. until this feels normal to them. And then we can go back to the act of terrorism. Yeah. So there's this sort of concept of using language that we keep seeing come up within power struggles. And obviously, we have in this episode Manchester and Lockwood interacting and that's a big sort of power play. Literally and figuratively. Yes. And within those scenes, there were a lot of interesting phrasings of things. Yeah. Well, to go back to kind of what I just said about Lockwood's strategy for sanitizing his fascist movement, basically. Manchester explicitly calls him a terrorist and says that what he's doing are acts of terrorism in the confrontation at the Lockwood's home. And I was very pleased that the show made that point for the people who still haven't gotten it, because mm. he is a terrorist. We've said it a few times, like there, there is no ambiguity there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when Manchester, Lockwood, and Lockwood's wife, Lydia, who has a name now, when they're 
all having tea together, Lockwood knows who Manchester is. Like they they recognize each other, but they're avoiding saying it in front of Lockwood's wife and Manchester mostly just to kind of torture Lockwood a little bit longer. So he says things that sound on the surface to Lydia like normal sentences between friends when it's actually alluding to more sinister things, such as when he's explaining why he stopped over. Uh, he said, how could I not after what he did? Obviously referring to how could he not get revenge on Lockwood after he kills his fiance. And then he says that he gave him a wedding gift, again, alluding to that it was his fiance who was killed. Big set of knives is the gift that he claims Lockwood gave him. A threatening image. And then we have kill two birds with one stone. Lydia thinks that he wanted to do two things at once and he meant it as a threat. You noticed that birds is British slang for something. So I happened to see a comment with an interview with, I believe it was Paul McCartney, talking about why he wrote the song Blackbird. Hmm. And bird is actually a term that's frequently used as slang to refer to like a woman, like we say like a chick in American English. Hmm. And so it was interesting the use of kill two birds because Fiona is already dead and Manchester is planning to threaten to kill Lydia. Yes. So I was like, huh, that was good too. Yes. And we had another biblical reference in this episode from Manchester. He said we could go biblical, an eye for an eye, tying back into that paradise lost Adam and Eve imagery that we've been getting this season. Well, and it's also interesting then that they're using the tie back to paradise lost because that fits with the context of saying like, oh, a civil war is kind of coming. That's what Paradise Lost was essentially about. Mm. And it was specifically the, the English Civil War. So all of that coming together is interesting as well, because the English Civil War was over this idea of does the leader of the country have the right to be kind of an authoritarian or can we have a more open representative government? Um, mm-hmm. And it was kind of like a precursor to a lot of the Enlightenment thoughts that led to the American Revolution and the creation of the U.S. Constitution. So it all does fit together. Yes. So all of these philosophies that we've seen kind of under the surface in the front eight episodes do fit together and they're all building towards this idea that we see by the end of Bunker Hill that there's a huge ideological divide that's happening. Yes. Yeah. So Manchester um, says a lot of interesting things. <laughs> Most of his lines have like double meanings or are like interesting references. Manchester also says to Jean the line, because you ain't going to study war no more, which is a reference to a gospel song. Mm-hmm. And the only thing about it that's curious is that he chooses to use that because it's from a style of music that's very American and neither he nor Jean is American. <laughs> Although Jean does really connect to... I mean, Jean identifies with that culture, but yeah. Jean then would be American, so he just wouldn't be... Well, yeah, but would he know that reference? He doesn't go to, like, a black church. No. Well, he has been shown to know a lot about, like, historically black roots music. That's true. Fair. So Manchester uses language in a kind of similarly persuasive way as Lockwood and Cara do. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's had a few exchanges with Sean. And in this episode, we see him try to persuade Cara to take Agent Liberty's life. And one thing that may not have jumped out <laughs> at anyone else besides me as anything notable was his like joke about her being a happy meal hero. <laughs> yep. And I'm like, I know that's meant to be like an insult about how she's like 
too squeaky clean and, and won't do what needs to be done. But then that also reminds me of how Cora really is, as Supergirl, a hero for children and is meant to be an ideal for young people, especially young girls and, you know, for older people as well. But just that ideal for people to strive for, which by nature is just very, like, stereotypically good. Mm. And it's kind of strange for me to see people talk about how they not only agree with Manchester, but are confused as to why Supergirl doesn't. Yeah, because we've both seen this. People who are being like, Manchester has the right idea and Supergirl should totally jump on that bandwagon of being judge, jury, and executioner. And that's not what the super mythos is about at all. No. Like, you have to remember the context of the whole super story to begin with. This is a heroic figure who was created by children of immigrants during the last huge wave of immigration to the United States. He was a figure created during the Great Depression, right before the start of World War II, meant to be an aspirational figure and a symbol of hope, a symbol of goodness. And in the context of that time period, World War II is when the United States culturally and politically kind of moved front and center globally. And because it was the first country to ever have a representative government, because it was one of few countries to have stable transitions of power throughout its history, people looked to that as something positive to aspire to. And the leaders of the country throughout that time period understood that and incorporated that into the decisions they made and the policies that they enacted. Not always. <laughs> I will clarify that because there was a lot of attempted empire building going on in Latin America. Lots of it as we heard when I talked about the uh, Guatemala thing in one of the previous episodes. But, and this is something that we're seeing now, there's a vacuum of that leadership and, and that desire to go high when other people are going low. And there is no world leader stepping up and saying, hey, we can be better and we don't have to be, you know, everybody calling names and vindictively throwing tariffs at each other <laughs> and causing human rights abuses and what have you. And that's what CARA stands for. Yeah, I was just watching this interview with Michelle Obama, who said that quote, and Colbert asked if she still believed that principle of going high when everyone else is going low. And, and she talked about how it's, you know, especially important in times like this, where the mainstream morality is <laughs> at risk in a way, and how it's important to demonstrate that kind of strong moral stance for young people, which is something that Supergirl as a show is very cognizant of, and something that, you know, Melissa as an actress talks about a lot as being really pivotal for her in this role that she plays. And that idea of being a sort of shining to Right, heroic character. <laughs> this pops up at various times of sort of political and moral strife. So we had, obviously, as you talked about when the comics were originally made, how that was important then, but also when the Christopher Reeves films were produced. You may look at those films now and think that they were just that like morally squeaky clean or like that earnest and, and like nerdy. But if you watch the film, Superman as a character is very different from the characters around him. And the characters around him are reflecting the state of that time. Like Lois Lane is kind of the skeptic. When did those ones come out? 
78, the first one. Oh, okay. Well, then that makes a lot of sense because that was a really cultural low point for the U.S. at that moment in time. 78 is when the United States withdrew from Vietnam after suffering heavy, heavy casualties. And the Cold War was really intensifying to uh, remind you all that that part of Kara and other Kara's story is coming. Mm, Yeah. So this sort of character plays a role in society of serving as an ideal and, and something that we can strive for. And you get to a place when things are low in society where you're tired of anti-heroes like Manchester Black. You want somebody who tries harder to do the morally right thing, no matter how difficult it is. Well, and I also want to point out just from having worked in education and stuff, you always want to set the standards high Mm -hmm. rather than lower. Yes. Because the higher you set the bar, the higher everybody goes because everybody's trying harder to reach the bar. Yes. And we see that with like right now, Mm -hmm. we have people who are lowering the bar morally. Well, morally, intellectually. Yeah, true. Also true. And that's interesting in terms of having this anti-hero versus this very squeaky clean hero character. We have Manchester in the comics tried to get Superman to kill him, to try to get him to go against his his moral ideas. He killed Lois Lane to try to force Superman to kill him. Ultimately, Superman did not. He chose to bury Lois Lane as opposed to enact his revenge. Kind of that idea of having things that matter to you more than revenge. And we saw in this episode, Manchester tried to get John to kill him or kind of like goaded him to either kill him or leave him alone in that scene where John was sort of mentally attacking him. Yeah. And the other thing that was interesting about that with that scene at the end where John and Manchester kind of have that confrontation about the fact that Manchester's been trying to goad him and is doing all these kind of objectively not good things. And he presents it as an either or of like, well, you're either going to have to do this to me or you're going to have to do that. And John, in a very Kara-like way, says, no, I'm going to find another way and I will eventually do it. Yes. And that's one of the big differences between Manchester and these characters is that Carr and Jean have hope that they are able to find another way. Um, Where Manchester obviously talks about how he doesn't think that they'll be able to do anything except for kill them to fix these problems. So we see these sort of moral power struggles and dilemmas. Yes. Yes. And one of the other power struggles we see in this episode is between the DEO and President Baker. Yeah. So there's been some interesting shifts in the working relationship between Alex and uh, Colonel Haley since we last saw them. Because I did notice in, in this episode, Alex was more willing to take her cues from Haley, especially when they were dealing with the president. When they have that first meeting over the teleconference and Baker starts complaining about the fact that they arrested a bunch of terrorists because it made people mad at him. (laughs) And Alex is like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) Like, she clearly wanted to start getting into it with him. And Haley's kind of like, stop. And Alex not only does it, but she actually, this was a nice acting choice, shifts and mimics Haley's posture and the way that she's standing. (laughs) And then when you see President Baker come back at the end, they are, again, standing a little bit more like a unified front, even though Alex isn't quite sure what's going to happen at that point. So there's been a a little bit of a shift of power, and I described it as a detente, which was something we heard a lot in the Cold War. Of like, you balance the two sides so that everybody's equal and they're like sort of mistrustful, but they're like willing to let things go for now. 
Because we saw in that scene, in a way, Haley kind of protected Alex from saying saying too much, saying too much, and <laughs> voicing her concerns too much because she knows Baker well. Yeah, well, and that's why Alex was willing to trust her judgment. Yeah, so that's an interesting sort of dynamic there. Yeah, but the other thing that was intriguing with that was coming back to this idea that there's been a very careful and precise use of language in a lot of these episodes, and you're supposed to pick up on that. Baker tells Haley and Alex if you think finding. A Agent Liberty will fix this, and by this he means his lack of a popularity, mm-hmm. then you need to find Agent Liberty. And unfortunately, that doesn't do what he wants. No. And so he's pretty pissed off about that. Which is interesting because the election shouldn't be for quite some time. Yeah, so it it is a little strange, but it's also not. I actually like that they found a way to bring in some of the problems that we have with our real president. Mm-hmm. without turning this guy into a caricature of him because within the context of the world of Supergirl, that wouldn't make sense. Also, Trump as a character would probably be too campy. Right? It's like you can't even... You could do Trump like straight Trump and it would be yeah. too much of a caricature. It would strain believability. Yes. Like But within the context of Supergirl and kind of where they are politically, Baker was the vice president for Marsden, who obviously he didn't know she was an alien, but he was on board enough with her policies that he was willing to be her running mate. And she was the one who advocated for the Amnesty Act and stuff like that. And he doesn't seem to have any malice towards Supergirl when we see him meet with her early in the season. But he's concerned about what the resignation of a president who deceived the public is going to do for the society as a whole. Mm -hmm. And so kind of like Alex was blowing up a little bit at Kara early on because she was afraid of doing things wrong and having it go badly, Baker's in a very similar position. And like, even though at the moment he's sort of personally insulated from losing his job, because in the US, we don't have votes of no confidence at the federal level like some other countries do. That's not how our government works. He still runs into the danger that Congress could make him completely ineffective as a president, which you kind of saw towards the end of the Obama administration. His opponents had taken over the legislature and were doing their best to stop him from accomplishing any of the things he wanted to. And so here we have on the surface, Baker, it's very self-centered in that he's like, I can't believe all of you are making these decisions that are hurting me. I want to be fake, cool Uncle Joe Biden. Um, (laughs) People used to like me. What are you doing? (laughs) And as they say in Hamilton, winning is easy, governing's harder. Uh, (laughs) But in addition to it being about his popularity, it is still underneath that a concern about the civil unrest throughout the country and what that's going to do both to the confidence in the government and to the interaction between people just generally speaking. So we see Alex and Haley kind of as a somewhat unified force against the president's goals. But another unified force we get a little bit of in this episode is Alex and Kara. Uh-huh. Within the DEO. Team Danvers. Team Danvers. We saw toward the beginning of the episode, Kara was hoping that the president would yell at Colonel Haley. So that Alex could enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which then, in retrospect, the scene that followed was unexpected and interesting. It was. And another little cute scene with Alex and Kara was when Kara talked about how she was like kidnapped with the Children of Liberty. And Alex over the phone is like, are you okay? Oh, of course you're okay. Right? It was such a natural, yeah. big sister-y thing. And then she's like, oh, duh. <laughs> yes, you're fine. Yeah, because <laughs> Alex is like on constant big sister mood. And it's just funny to see that like instinct be there, even when it's like, oh, wait a minute. 
minute. You're calling me and you have superpowers. Obviously, you're fine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because she is invulnerable. Just like those hearts. <laughs> Yes. And sort of speaking of cars and vulnerability, they used powers very interestingly in this episode. They used them a lot. Yeah. It was fun. Yes, it We was. don't usually get to see it that much. One of the sort of common complaints for Supergirl as a show, and I think for probably similar types of shows, is not using the full range of certain characters' abilities. Yep. Because it's expensive. Yes. Yes, it's expensive. And then also sometimes... And time consuming. If the character thinks of it, it might solve things too easily. Mm-hmm. But in this episode was written by Rob Wright and Eric Carrasco, who Kevin Smith, uh, who sometimes directs the show, referred to him as like kind of the comic book guy of the Supergirl writers. Which is obvious if you follow his Twitter. Yes. Because he geeks out about comic-y things all of the time. Mm-hmm. And he tweeted about sort of the intricacies of how the powers work and how certain elements of the Supergirl world work. He tweeted, it's so tricky. Honestly, we have to play with the rules now and then to make the story work. But I'm such an obsessive geek, I try to make it make sense in my head. Oh, so just like the rest of us. <laughs> Yes. I like that sort of recognition that we play with the rules sometimes. You have to. It's TV. There are limits to kind of what you can do versus in writing where the reader can imagine everything. (laughs) Yeah. And also in a fantastical sci-fi world, things typically don't always... Make sense. It's made up. So like... (laughs) Yeah. It can do what it wants. Unless it's really based in like hard science and like it's literally speculative sci-fi where this is like what you expect to happen in the future. Following the train of thought of like science isn't going to lead you to a place that makes full sense, but it's a lot of fun. It is. And we got to see all of the aliens use their powers in this episode for the first time, (laughs) which was awesome. Wow. Yeah. We saw Nia now use her power. We saw the full glory of her powers for the first time in this episode. She used her oniromancy, which, if you Google it, is the interpretation of dreams in order to foretell the future. And you noted that she, like, sees what she's doing in, in these dreams. Yeah, which was really cool because that doesn't become clear until she starts understanding how they work. And so we kind of got to go on that journey with her because you get to see the vague, like she sees the scene before her, but then she saw like the hook moving. And I said to you, I think it reminded me of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban at the end where he's waiting and waiting for the person he thinks is going to rescue them from the Dementors before realizing it was him. Mm. And that he needs to act. And that's kind of the the hero moment that we got for her was like, oh, this is where I need to be. And this is what I need to do, which was really cool. Yeah, it's not about like getting the people around her to fix the problem. It it turns out that she is the hero of the dream. It's almost like her dreams are giving her the advice on how to fix whatever's about to happen. Hmm. Yeah, and we see that sort of uh, later on in the episode after Kara describes it as kind of like working out a muscle. The more you use your powers, the stronger they get. We see that Nia has, I guess, maybe like a micro sleep kind of situation where she closes her eyes and she has this vision and then she does what she sees. Mm. It gives her the knowledge. So she has this kind of precognition like on the fly, which if you're thinking about how a character like Dreamer would turn into a superhero with the powers that we had seen so far, this is a good way to give her more of an advantage and maybe like an action scene. Yeah, well, and it seemed like when Brainy was discussing how she was able to control it, that it seems like the better she gets at it, the more she actually will be able to control it and Mm. use it differently as opposed to like just when she's like literally sleeping. Yes. 
And sort of speaking of Nia and Brainy interacting, you had a nice, really uh, relevant quote for their scene in the warehouse um, where Brainy gives Nia kind of a pep talk. I did. I made another Hamilton joke, which if you followed my Tumblr, you know that I liked to do that last season, which was the history has its eyes on you, which is very literal in this case, because Brainy as a person from the future is like, I am witnessing yes. the beginning of everything. Yeah, which is pretty cool. Very cool. And I think will help for viewers who didn't know that comic backstory stuff might clarify why he has had the reaction that he did to her. Yes. And he knows her descendant who's a member of the Legion. Um whose name he accidentally mentions. So I guess they must look alike, which is wild, considering that it's many generations <laughs> down the line. Um, yeah. And another cool thing that the guests we had in our last episode actually pointed out on Tumblr and Evolutionary Matter, she noticed that Nia says that once in a generation, some of her people, she specified that the women get this genetic onirimetsi. And it was just a nice, subtle way to reaffirm that Nia, who is a trans woman, is in fact a woman. Yeah, that was really awesome and very subtly done yes. for, for Supergirl. a show that usually yells its messages out to you. <laughs> yes, um, very endearingly. But And I know we've had interviews with Nicole Maines, who plays Nia, saying that more of that context is going to come up. And we know that they've cast other members of her family who we'll see later in the season. So we'll get more of how those two things tie together. Mm -hmm. And there was a line that she said about how it called attention to it because she says, I've always known myself really well, mm. prefacing her, her thing about how women in her society get these powers sometimes, which I think was a nod to that and how she's always known from a young age that like yes. that was her identity. Mm -hmm. So that was very cool. It also a little bit though reminded me of um, Silver Banshee. <laughs> Yeah. With the, the conversation between Siobhan and her aunt about how, like, the women get the power <laughs> occasionally. <laughs> yes. Like, uh, but in this case. But in this case, it's not to be homicidal. <laughs> uh. And we're seeing Nia turn into the superhero dreamer in front of our eyes. And it's also cool to see a little bit of Supergirl as, like, an idol for Nia to look up to. We just got a glimpse of it in this episode. Yes. Oh, that was so great. That part at the end where she was like awed at seeing Supergirl in person and then Supergirl turns to her and says like, hey, you did great. Mm -hmm. Yes. I was like, oh, bless. <laughs> and that was, again, another nod to the power that words have and that putting that energy out there has for other people. Yeah. So I'm anticipating Supergirl also being a kind of mentor for Nia as a superhero. It'll be really funny if she persists kind of the way she does with Lena of separating Kara and Supergirl as two different people <laughs> since Nia also knows both of them. <laughs> yeah, that'll be interesting. Supergirl and Dreamer, hey, so my friend Kara says... <laughs> When Kara does that, it always reminds me of the way that we were taught to speak about like personal issues in health class or whatever and be like, someone I know said <laughs> so that you don't say their name. I'm like, And we saw Kara interacted with Nia as a mentor in this episode a little bit too. Yes. When Nia sort of came out to her as an alien. Yeah. Speaking, I love that you worded it that way because I was just going to say it reminded me of when Kara refused to leave Alex alone in her house in <laughs> oh, season two true. and showed up during Alex's coming out episode <laughs> to tell her that she was fine. Yes. And Kara did the exact same thing with Nia in this episode. <laughs> it's funny because we'll talk about that tendency a little bit later. Oh, Kara. Kara. <laughs> How she approaches problems. You are persistent. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But you, you noticed a phrase that she said that 
Kara said to Nia. Yes. In their interactions in this episode. She used that you're safe again, mm-hmm. which we saw her use several times in the previous episode and that we saw the contrast with Jean from the flashback in 403. <laughs> yeah. So they're really, they're really reinforcing this idea of, you know, what do people associate Supergirl with and the fact that when she says it, she means it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I feel safer. Well, but it'll be interesting <laughs> because they've done such a deliberate job of reinforcing it with the way that this episode ended mm-hmm. and the way the storyline's going to turn, what damage is going to be done to that yeah. later. And we also saw a lot more usage of powers. Brainy used his legion ring against the child of liberty, the woman. He put the ring on her, shot her up, and then she fell down, <laughs> which is a gag that Eric, the writer, had said that he had been waiting to do with that ring. Awesome. And we also saw Jean use some like mental power abilities that we haven't seen him really use before in that way. Yeah, well, and it, it's interesting that we saw it because he kind of alluded to Alex in season one that he was almost a little afraid of all the things that he could do. Mm. But, and it goes back to that comment that Kara made about how you use them like a muscle and the, the more that you use mm. them, the more refined they get and the better they get. Because um, Jean has been accessing his more sort of meditative abilities more. More regularly, yeah. Yeah, after Marin came back into his life, so. Yeah. We saw him kind of communicate with Manchester from far away and be able to get sort of glimpses of what's around him. He figured out that Agent Liberty was with him. He was able to tell that Manchester had tortured someone in his apartment. Mm, Also true. Like he picked up the psychic energy that something bad had happened. He had hurt somebody in there, yeah. And he also like hurt Manchester somehow. We heard this like ringing. Mm. So some sort of like mental pain in his head, I would assume. And he also alluded to the fact that he could kill him with his mind. Which is wild. And when you consider how dangerous a power like that is, it's a good thing Jean's a good person. Like, Yes. And it's kind of ironic that they're bringing this fact up that Jean has this ability to kill someone with his mind now that Jean has become a pacifist. It's funny because Jean's actor, David Harewood, has kind of complained a little bit about not being able to use the full expanse of Jean's powers. And recently, he kind of complained about the fact that he hasn't been able to fight. So it's just funny that now, as we're seeing that Jean can do so much. Yeah, he's not. He's not. (laughs) Well, we'll see how long that lasts. (laughs) Um, David's certainly waiting for Jean to stop being a pacifist. (laughs) Jean to snap. He's like, I would like to get back to being Martian Manhunter. (laughs) Well, that's not surprising to me, though, because David posts videos all the time of himself, like, snowboarding and hiking. Yeah. But he's getting such interesting acting stuff right now. I know. He is. Like, I prefer this yes Jean. It's fun. i'd like to see more of him as like a private eye type role so and then we have Kara, who has a lot of powers and we saw i think almost all of them with one notable exception which we'll talk about in a minute but we saw her use her x-ray vision i think a couple of times mm-hmm. her freeze breath which always amuses me because she keeps using her freeze breath when she's trying to be discreet as Kara danvers yeah in season three she like freeze breathed morgan edge out of the way of like a missile or something standing as Cara Danvers in her dress. <laughs> and in episode two of this season, we saw her use it to blow back a bunch of, of Mercy and Otis's henchmen in Luther Corp. I wonder if it's because it's like the easiest one to explain away if 
somebody questions it. <laughs> it's like a gust of wind. Yeah, possibly. It, it kind of makes sense. And in this episode, we saw her freeze the ground so that the guy slipped, fell down. You know what I really liked in the way she used her powers in this episode? All of it was very clever in kind of the way the movie depicted Kara as being very clever in using like what's around her and playing her powers and kind of doing the mental calculus of figuring out like, yeah. if I fly hard enough, I can lift the whole building off the ground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And all she had to do with the one guy was flick his head to knock him out. Right. Which made me laugh too, because that's such a thing, like as a sibling that you would do, like you flick your sibling's ear or something. And it's like, she just did that and knocked him out wholesale, like wild. <laughs> <laughs> and I had talked about in the previous episode, how they did something similar in Smallville, but Eric on Twitter, which you should probably follow him if you would like to hear more of the little insights for the episodes that he writes. He was referencing Lois and Clark. They did that in that show. So if you go to his Twitter, you can see the video for it. Yes. And then so the other powers, we saw her use her super speed a little bit, a couple of very comedic uses of it. Oh, when was that? The coffee in the elevator, but then also when she zooms away and you see her phone and her glasses just like confusing physics students everywhere. (laughs) The very cartoonish (laughs) spinning of it, uh, which apparently was a reference to the Injustice video game. Oh, nice. Lots of references this episode. And then we saw her lifting the couch, which I kind of laughed at because I was like, an Ikea couch is not that heavy. I could do that, Kara. (laughs) Well, maybe she wasn't just trying to show off. That's true. Well, we've seen in her own house that like when she needs something from under her bed, that's just what she does. She just lifts it. Yeah. As opposed to like a normal person who'd get down on the ground and like crawl underneath. She's like, whatever, I'll just lift up the whole thing. (laughs) Makes sense to me. And the one thing that we didn't see in this episode was heat vision. And there was an instance where she could have, theoretically, with the melted end metal Mm. that kind of stuck her to the spot. She could have heated it and then she couldn't use her heat vision because Manchester had used moon dust against her. It got in her eyes and made them red and she wouldn't have been able to use that ability. Well, and it was moon dust though from an alien planet. It was not like random dust from the moon of Earth. And it acts in a similar way to tear gas because her eyes become all irritated and really red. And then she also has like respiratory problems. But it was also based on studies NASA did of real moon dust, which apparently when the particles are really fine, if you breathe them in, they can destroy your lung tissue. Which is interesting. It's also interesting that we have this sort of weapon against Supergirl that behaves like tear gas when we have compared on this show kryptonite to like a neurotoxin. So yeah, all these different kind of weaponized substances. Yeah, (laughs) She like catches it midair, which (laughs) I know. And then she stared straight at it. As a car, it's a grenade. What are you doing? Yeah, well, then it's like if it's gonna if it's gonna make a big explosion, oh, then yeah. as Supergirl, you would want to be able to tell if, if she needs to, like, yeah, like what to do with it, cover it up, or if she can throw it or whatever. But she did the same thing in Luther's. When Lillian threw the oh right the sound thing at her and it affected her super hearing. So one of these days, Car's gonna learn, and and then watch out, villains. <laughs> But he uses the moon dust against her and she gets trapped in the nth metal, which is pretty much the only known metal that Kara can't just bend or punch her way through. Which you know that for storytelling purposes, the writers have like a list of everything the comics have ever established is like 
Yes. <laughs> Something that inhibits superpowers. <laughs> and the like moon dust thing was a new thing they came up with that would be able to affect her. <laughs> and the way that she gets out of it is she flies up and brings the whole building with her. Oh, you know what's really funny that I just realized too about the way she's flying? What? She looks like the statue that Lena built oh, in season three. I like that. Because she's covered in the metal. That's good. <laughs> That's true. So she flies up and crashes the whole building back down and the nth metal shatters, which it doesn't make sense, but it's okay. The metal also cooled really fast while she was flying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the most sturdy metal on Earth, but it's brittle enough that if you cause a minor earthquake, it will break. <laughs> it's fine. This is fine. And you had the comparison. Yeah, that it was very like the house in The Wizard of Oz crushing the witch. <laughs> but in this case, the witch was Lockwood. And she's like, yeah, what are you going to do about it now? <laughs> Because technically, at that moment, she thinks she's defeated him. So it's kind of her ding-dong, the witch is dead moment. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And then it ends up not. No. Speaking of another usage of powers, Lockwood, toward the end of the episode, says, as he's being taken into the prison, he says, like, very quietly, see you soon, while Supergirl's hovering in the air, because he knows that she'll hear him, because she has super hearing, which is an interesting thing that we don't see a whole lot. No, and the other thing about it, to go back to kind of what we were talking about earlier, is that's another power play moment at the very end of the episode that's setting us up for the conflicts that are going to come in the second act of the season after the break. Yeah. Well, we saw a lot of use of powers and Supergirl in this episode. And we also saw Kara as a reporter. We did. She got to do both yes. for most of the episode, which was... Which is a very classic representation of the sort of Supergirl type story in keeping with Eric's love of comics. We see Kara, uh, as we talked about a little bit, displays her tendency to like pry her way into things to try to help. Yep. All right. Just warning you now, we talked about the show's use of language. Cycles is going to blow your mind and do the same thing. Get ready. And Carr in the episode also pries her way into an elevator in a very comedic, super dramatic way. Like she, she like latches both door. hands like onto the <laughs> elevator door and pulls it open. It's like, Carr, <laughs> it's not that serious. You could just stick your hand in too. <laughs> the door has a sensor. And also you could probably shove the whole thing in with your pinky finger. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which is just funny because Carr is a character, especially with her reporting, but also with the way that she handles her relationship and tries to help people has always been very forceful. <laughs> That's one way to put <laughs> well, it. She forces her way into Alex's home, as Alex phrased it, to help her after Alex was kind of distraught over Maggie not liking her back after she came out. And in this episode, we see that she's not like super aggressive about it, but she doesn't go away because <laughs> Nia has been worrying her and, and she comes to her apartment and she says that, I know you want to be left alone and I, I will absolutely do that after you hear me out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you must yeah. first listen to me. She She's like the version of those like salesmen who come around knocking on the door. She would make a great salesman. And this is something that's been interesting because Kara and her reporting hasn't always been as much at the forefront of the series as we might like. And we haven't seen certain reporting qualities like nurtured. Mm -hmm. But this tendency of hers to kind of be able to get into these situations and force her way through in order to get a story or in order to help somebody has been there the whole time. Like in the crime scene in season two, when she like shoved past the, um, <laughs> yes. I guess, security guard. Yeah. 
because it was inside of a prison, the crime scene. Or the time that she comes in to see Lena and the secretary's like, she's just so fast. <laughs> yes, exactly. And in Parasite Lost, when they go to Amade's daughter's house and Kara tries to stall her while Jean is snooping. Speaking of prying. <laughs> <laughs> yes. She keeps the door open, doesn't let her close it. And she's not like, <laughs> the way I'm describing it makes her sound like really aggressive, but she's also very- Speaking like, of prying, remember that time that she forged mail on behalf of Kat? <laughs> Yeah, at time. And that, that same kind of quality is interesting because we've seen Kara be like really involved in James and Lena's relationship, which we talked about in the previous episode. And it's really funny to me that they kind of made a joke about that in this episode. Yes. <laughs> where James, where Kara asks him how things are going and James starts like venting about Lena, like in front of Nia, which is funny. And Kara's like, oh yeah, like she shows her concern, but then she is like, I was talking about the article. Yeah, which was funny, but on the other hand, it also goes back to something I've mentioned a few times both in the podcast and then on Tumblr of seeing the priorities for the human characters versus the alien characters because James is thinking like, oh man, Lena's still mad at me and Kara's like, yeah, but you were writing an article about the time where you almost killed me. <laughs> Yeah. Because the anti-alien hate group wanted you to blow things up. Like, can we focus on that? <laughs> yeah. She was even using more, like, reporter jargon throughout this episode, which was fun. <laughs> yeah. She said to Brainy, who was uh, kind of coaching Nia through her precognition dreams, she said that she would definitely have follow-up questions. <laughs> and the big thing that I was excited about regarding reporting in this episode was how Kara let herself get kidnapped. To pursue the story. Yeah. In keeping with Lois Lane's teachings. And the way that she got kidnapped was a hilarious scene. She started a conversation with them saying she took a DNA test and she was actually car Liberty and her father is agent. Which was amazing because it was like a dad joke. <laughs> yeah, it was. And Kara being ridiculous. <laughs> Yes. And some people were like weirdly critical of it, not in like a mean way, but kind of like she was messing up when I'm like, she was trying to get kidnapped. It didn't really matter what she said. She was intentionally trying to get their attention and say that she was looking for the children of liberty. Like there's not too many subtle ways <laughs> yes. to do that. No. And that was funny. It was actually very similar to the scene where Monel got himself kidnapped on purpose last season. Yeah. In in the sense of being like totally goofy in order to like arouse their suspicion. <laughs> yes. And she played it like they were being friendly and taking her to him. When she was like, oh, is this for us? Is the van can pulled up? And then they're pushing her in and she's like, this is happening so fast. <laughs> Which was just hilarious. Yes. Uh, and it's fun to see that manner of funny Cara Danvers because there aren't always situations where they can play upon that because Kara knows most of the characters that she interacts with really well. Yeah. So that sort of season one goofiness where she was still feeling her way through certain relationships isn't there as much. But Kara's interaction with more people of National City has allowed her to have this brand of funny, which has been fun. Well, and the other thing to remind people of again is that we've talked about this before of how well the show is doing at finding ways to bring humor into the middle of these very intense, kind of heavy other storylines that are happening. And this episode did a great job of switching tones throughout the thing because like Kara was playing it off as funny, but then Nia catches onto it and then it becomes serious. But then Brainy's over there like, oh dear. And like, it brings it back to funny. Yeah. That was really nicely done. And then the other thing, which I was very excited about because it was relevant to something I've researched, was the fact that they chose to have Kara talk about the DNA test. And specifically, I wonder if that was an intentional product placement actually. But 
mention one of the brands of DNA tests that's available in the States, because one thing that I have found out doing research on white nationalist groups and racism and things like that is taking those DNA tests is actually very common in those circles because it's a way of proving your purity of your ancestry. So I was like, cool, someone else is reading that stuff too. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's terrible, but I'm glad that you included it there for context because it should have been there. And kind of makes sense for it to be something that Carr's aware of as a character. Yes. To try to like engage them, the children of liberty. Yes. And and so Carr lets herself get kidnapped. And then when they're all like... She's trying to reassure Nia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's like, as a reporter, when you get kidnapped, you're on the right track. And Nia's like, whose rule is that? <laughs> Carr's like Lois Lane. And then Nia doesn't know who Lois Lane is. And Kara's face is just like, how dare you not know? <laughs> yeah, she's like, like confused. She's like, there are gaps in your education we need to solve. Like, <laughs> yes. And Kara, as uh, Nia's reporting mentor, <laughs> is appalled. And so am I. No. Um, <laughs> and it's cool that they mentioned Lois Lane in this episode. Yes, that was a good foreshadow. Yes, because next week starts the crossover and we're going to finally see Lois Lane. And it's also fun to reference this iconic reporter character, one of the most iconic reporter characters. And the other cool thing about it is it very subtly gives more context to the relationship Kara's had with Clark and Lois in that we know that she clearly follows her career and that she knows these things that are Lois's rules of reporting that probably aren't like written down somewhere. (laughs) And that in and of itself, the fact that Lois Lane gets kidnapped all the time and that (laughs) that's how she like ends up getting stories is such a core Lois Lane thing. Yes. That I'm really happy that they played upon that because I love the character. And it's kind of nice to see when Supergirl kind of inherits these ideas from the Superman comics and then kind of turns them into her own thing and and sheds a new light on some of these ideas that I've been attached to in my life. So indeed, that's always fun. And as far as reporting goes for Kara, she gets her story, but yes, at the end of the episode, we see that Kako is being protested. And I thought that was interesting because we end this episode where in a way, Kara Danvers as a reporter is being threatened. This identity, this like way of life is at risk in a way. Mm. And then we also have the Supergirl identity, that way of life that she has established at risk or kind of changed. She has what I have dubbed the identity crisis. Which is a good, well, we kind of talked about that earlier in this episode. So that's a good way to put it. Where she has a crisis over whether or not to reveal her other identity. And it's so nicely contained because it's in such a short moment and there's no dialogue, but you see all of those emotions on her face. It was really well done. Yeah, that was a nice scene. And it was interesting because Kara got basically fired from the DEO. And this is not the first time that she's been fired. (laughs) A fun fact is that Eric, the writer for this episode, wrote a season two episode where she was fired by Snapper. And another sort of more relevant time that she was fired was when Kat tried to get Kara Danvers to admit that she was Supergirl. So this is the second time that Kara has been fired for not admitting that she has this other identity or not revealing her other identity. Mm. And it's interesting to put these two situations up and compare them to each other because that situation with Kat is something that I think people don't really recognize for as like serious as it was. Yeah, especially with the like coming out narrative and analogy and reality of the show. Well, and also for the the power dynamic involved in it, you have the head of the organization confronting this 24-year-old assistant and being like, you need to do this thing that I'm telling you and cornering her after hours in a private space or I'm going to fire you. And that, I think, looks different, the power dynamics of that now than it might have several years ago. Mm, yeah. 
So it's an interesting thing to reflect upon now that we have this similar sort of situation where Kara's, again, fired for not revealing her other identity and, and coming out as an alien as Kara Danvers. Well, the part about that that's curious is why do people assume she has a second identity? Like, why does, why does anyone assume Supergirl has some other, like, day job or whatever? Anyhow, like, what do they have any reason to think that that's true? Well, I guess from like a she can't pay for things, <laughs> or like, well, yeah, but they're paying Supergirl. <laughs> like, true, that is a question. Maybe we'll hear more about that because yeah, I, they are going to get more into it in um, the episode that comes back after the break. Yeah, they don't have who Kara is as Kara Danvers on the record at the DEO, which is something that some people were confused about. No, yeah, Alex specifically mentions that she's paid off book which is fairly common actually in intelligence agencies that's how you pay contacts whose identity you don't want revealed in case like your organization gets hacked or something happens and somebody's able to get a list of names and code names so those people will get paid like in cash basically off-site somewhere yeah but we've seen like car as car Danvers in the DEO and I think on occasion Alex has referred to Supergirl as Kara so it's likely that some people do know but I think they're going for that at least everybody doesn't know and it's not recorded anywhere. And certainly Haley and the president. Yeah, they don't know. But I think some people definitely do know because you noticed, and I noticed it on my rewatch too, that at least one DEO agent kind of makes eye contact with Kara as she's mulling over what to do and shakes their head like, don't tell him. Mm -hmm. Which was a really interesting little subtle moment. Yeah, well, I would expect just contextually looking at the DEO as an organization that people who work on the floor within earshot of Alex and or Wynn and people who work closely with them probably would know who she is and have signed agreements saying that they won't reveal like Supergirl's real name. Mm. But probably anyone else who works there, because it's a pretty big building, odds are most of the other people who work there don't know or necessarily interact with her on a regular basis. Yeah. But it'll be interesting to see what more they have to say about this because Eric again on Twitter mentioned that they had more information to give about the situation. So Yay. And the reason that, you know, President Baker is pushing for this is because a combination of like his need for popularity and also the rift. He presents the uh, Metropolis Inquisitor, which Supergirl Radio on Twitter had pointed out is typically known as kind of like a tabloid. And on it, it says human rights activist with Lockwood's picture on it. And the important thing to understand there is that, again, with the use of language, he's intentionally playing on the idea of being a human rights activist in the global sense of it. So if you've ever read the UN Declaration on Human Rights, it's actually really interesting because the language it uses is the word everyone. It's inclusive of all people on planet Earth, basically, versus the way it's being used here, which is human-only rights, Mm -hmm. and intentionally trying to make those two things seem the same when they aren't. Plus, also, that was a nice shot that we had because you saw this very humanizing, normal photo of Lockwood on the cover of the tabloid, which is kind of like how in our present situation, a lot of publications have gotten criticism for showing pictures of neo-Nazis and white supremacists as like, they're just normal people who happen to be xenophobic bigots. Whereas James and Katko made the decision to use like the picture of him after his arrest where he's in the full getup that he wears to commit terrorist acts and his face is battered because he's been fighting with people. And so highlighting that visual contrast too was a really nice job that they did on a subtle kind of level. Mm -hmm. That was a nice either writing or prop decision. Or both. Yeah. 
And then back to what President Baker was discussing with Supergirl at the end of the episode, there's this sort of false equivalency of the fact that Lockwood has been revealed to be a terrorist and the fact that Supergirl hasn't revealed who her ordinary human person identity is. But you had pointed out that it's a little bit of a false equivalency because he's trying to say like, my family's under attack too, but then he mentions they're with the Secret Service. It's like, yeah, Yeah. they're under threat, but you have 24-hour security Mm -hmm. on them. And then you get 24-hour security for life because you've had this job. So that's not really the same unless you're planning to say that if Supergirl reveals her identity, you're going to put security following her whole family around forever Mm -hmm. until this whole thing dies down. Like, that's an issue there with a kind of a skewed sense of perspective. But it's also drawing upon, I think, a conflict we're experiencing politically in general right now about accountability. Is anyone really above the law? And that was the conflict in the English Civil War that was covered in Paradise Lost through the the Bible fanfic metaphor. And so the right answer to that is no. And it's also interesting in the context of how a lot of people view the supers as kind of being godlike. We'll have to see how that eventually plays itself out. But I had been anticipating for a while that the Children of Liberty were going to either encourage other people to try to dox Supergirl and find out who she was or that they were going to actually just do it, mm-hmm. especially because that's so relevant to things going on in reality with like WikiLeaks and all these other big data hacking scandals. Mm-hmm. As someone who is familiar with this sort of storytelling concept in like sci-fi and fantasy where you have an ability or like a secret like identity and you try to help people with it, but telling people would put you or people around you at risk. I don't particularly expect them to actually reveal that Cara Danvers is Supergirl in any permanent sense because I think it limits their storytelling abilities. Yeah, maybe not to the public but it may have fallout where like some of the characters that we already know find out because they're involved in journalism or something else. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody added Cara to Lena for instance that would be a big Mm. storytelling moment. Although yeah, I don't expect Cara to make that decision. I can't see how she would come to that conclusion Cara's just going to be like, you know what? I know that you've been advocating for uh, the eradication of my people and (laughs) that you want to give human people powers because you think I'm arrogant and terrible. But, but by the way, funny story. Uh, <laughs> like, I could see her maybe doing it in like a situation where she has no other choice, sort of like with Lucy in season one. Yeah. Which I would also be okay with. I, I want to see the like dramatic fallout of it. I can't see her ever coming around on President Baker because there's no, no upside for her. It's too high a risk in her head. And, you know, it wasn't a problem for the DEO at any point before now. Well, but she also had more people above Alex at the DEO kind of protecting both of them. In a way, yeah. But it's also, you know, President Baker isn't doing it because... Because he cares. He has his... Yeah, he has his um, other motivations for it. I think if they made like a, this is the right thing to do in a different light, Car might be more mm. open to it. Yeah. But the, the motivations of we need to find out who you are as an alien are not palatable. They are not. So that conflict between Supergirl and President Baker wraps up with Baker saying the United States does not want a war with Supergirl. And Kara says, then I trust you won't start one. Which is interesting for a couple reasons. Because Baker has set the United States against Supergirl, Mm. which is kind of a concept that we've talked about in this podcast, like maybe later on in the season, Kara feeling less connected to America and becoming more of a more universal Earth protector and more connected to people of all different 
different cultures and mm. less um, U.S. centered. So that might be interesting later on in the season. And then Kara gives that line of, then I trust you won't start one, which was a nice sort of power move. <laughs> In a sense where she establishes that she's prepared to face this theoretical war with the United States. I just like the idea that Kara has enough confidence to think that she could take on an entire country's resources yes. all at once. <laughs> um, like, but yeah, she she apparently is. it is. a bluff? We just don't know, but she's confident. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it was cool because the delivery wasn't particularly forceful or aggressive. No, it wasn't really threatening. No. It was kind of just matter of fact, uh, even kind of compassionate. In a, well, not, you know, in a light sense. Not exactly. Where she establishes that this won't be a problem unless you make it a problem, but also establishes that she's able to handle it if it does become a problem. Which, one of the reasons I like Supergirl as a superhero is that she has these sort of unconventional combinations of qualities where she's very girly and like sort of bubbly sometimes. Mm. But then she also is very powerful. And she doesn't lose any of her more compassionate or girly whatever qualities while she's being powerful. And this kind of demonstrated that idea of not like girliness, but she demonstrated how you can be powerful without being aggressive. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Which was fun. Yeah. And the other thing that was an interesting contrast with this scene was seeing how excited she was when she met President Marsden, like not even knowing she was an alien mm -hmm. in previous seasons versus this relationship, which is so much more confrontational mm -hmm. and that shine of enthusiasm just really isn't there anymore. But again, this decision to separate from the DEO and be independent is setting us up for whatever turns the story is going to take in the second act because Kara now not being legitimized by being attached to the government and not having been vetted and having a background check and everyone saying like, no, she's legitimate we know who she is, could make things interesting when we start seeing Cosney and Kara come into play. Mm. Because then it's going to, it's kind of going to be like with Bizarro. People aren't going to know for sure. And when you have all this mistrust in the reporting, which we've now also had set up at the end of this arc of the season, who are people going to believe? And what damage is having a second person who looks like Supergirl with motives we don't know going to do to Kara's reputation to go back to kind of that concept that James talked about. She could really do some damage, especially now that Lockwood has kind of planted that question in people's minds of Supergirl's legitimacy and like what secrets she's hiding. Yep. So at the end of that scene, we have an exchange with Kara and Alex where Alex tries to reassure Kara that she's kind of going to work on them and try to get them to change their minds. And Kara very like appropriately dramatically <laughs> says protect this place and everything it stands for and then fly away. It was a nice moment. A sad moment. It was. But it was also interesting because it was kind of like last episode where Kara saw the writing on the wall with Manchester very early on. Mm -hmm. She sees it here too. Yeah. Where Alex is still like, okay, we'll be able to manage this somehow. Well, that's Alex in her way being just as determined as Kara. And she's like, I will find a solution. Yes. Whereas Kara sees like a shift in what the DEO stands for. Well, I think it's more she recognizes that for all the power that Alex may have, there's only so much that she can do and the, the, the tide has turned away from that. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it hadn't turned in that way, Alex might have more power to affect yes. that sort of change. And that moment was interesting because we had been talking a little bit about how they have established space fam and like super friends, the main characters of the show being kind of very together and, and having a few instances where they're all one place and they're a sort of unified force, even though there's um, differences of opinion within the group, obviously. But we talked about how we may see them over time become very separated in one form or another. And this isn't 
an instance where we see with Carr leaving the DEO, she and Alex have been separated and can't work together the same way that they have before. So that'll be really interesting to see. And Alex didn't have a ton of big story in this episode because it was so, like, last week was so focused on human characters. This week was much more focused on the alien characters specifically. And then how that played into what was happening with the Children of Liberty. But the times Alex was present, she was moving a lot of the story along and getting the pieces in play with the DEO. Like we had her with that great moment of uh, getting the guy to give up the information about confirming Agent Liberty's identity. Hmm. And then we also saw the shift in her relationship with Colonel Haley, who we also haven't gotten to know that much yet. And she's a regular. So I expect we will see much more of those relationships evolving as we go into like the back part of the season. But the biggest thing that was interesting at the end in that exchange with Kara and Alex. So at the end of the scene at the DEO, you have Alex wanting to go and change things and say something, but she chooses not to. And she holds back and she waits, which is very in keeping with who she is as a character. She needs to figure out what's the right strategy before she goes forward. Whereas you have at CACO, James made his decision to editorialize, to expose Lockwood, thought that was the right thing to do. And he now is suddenly realizing like either he waited too long or something else has happened. And now like the tide of public opinion has changed and that didn't work. And what's very cool about the way those two characters end up in the end of this episode 408 is it's the opposite of where they were in 405 where you had Alex immediately choosing to renounce Haley's views on Jean and James saying no I'm not ready to put an opinion out there yet Mm -hmm. and so far what we've seen is neither strategies totally worked no So they tried both and yeah, they've tried both. So that encapsulates this issue that I think a lot of us identify with in real life too of like, okay, well, where do you go from here if neither one of those things is working? And it goes back to Kara's point about you always have to look for another way. And I am very curious to see what they choose to do and try to come up with in finding those other ways and bringing the characters together because I think that's a question we're all asking in a lot of contexts. Yeah. So I really liked the way the story all came together in this episode. I thought it was very tightly woven and put together nicely and all the different technical elements were solid. So it was a good ending episode for this front part of the season. Yeah. When we saw the trailer, which was very like lighthearted and comedic with, mm-hmm. it was Brainy, Nia and Kara. And it was kind of this like goofy comedic promo for the episode. It was like, how is this going to be a mid-season finale? <laughs> Little um, did we know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they had this sort of end scene. Although retrospectively, it makes sense because we knew that Manchester and Agent Liberty were going to confront each other in the episode. So they they definitely raised stakes just as we're moving into the crossover that's coming up next week. And they also fed into the crossover really nicely, which Supergirl traditionally that doesn't happen because usually Kara is like the only character in the crossover and then it's irrelevant to Supergirl for the rest of the season. So I am hoping that this year that is not the case. Yeah. I mean, one of the um, interviews... Rovner said something like Supergirl's going to be at a crossroads or she's going to be really reflecting upon her current situation. And that makes so much more sense now. <laughs> yes. Especially since not only is Kari going to interact with Lois, you know, bringing in that heavy reporter as a hero theme that we've been dealing with this season, but she's also going to interact with Clark, who doesn't work with the government, as they've mentioned. And who's just coming off, coming back from visiting Argo and learning about his, you know, family's culture and their past. And it'll be interesting to see how his perspective may be has shifted a little bit as well and if they get time to talk about that yeah which given the way that rovner described it i do expect to happen to some degree so that will be fun twill 
And on that note, we will definitely be doing an episode next week for the crossover. We'll just have to see how tight the turnaround is to get it posted on our usual day because it won't be over until Tuesday. So if you'd like to contact us with your comments, questions, or theories about what's going to happen in the crossover, you can find us on Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram at Supergirls Attic. Thank you for listening.